Welcome to the Health Leaders Finance Podcast. I'm Jack O'Brien, Finance Editor for Health Leaders. My guest today is Allison Y. Schwartz, former Congresswoman and CEO of the Better Medicare Alliance. Congresswoman Schwartz, thank you for joining me today. Well, pleased to be with you. Despite a new presidential administration and the changing control of Congress, healthcare remains a contentious issue on the federal level as the nation reels from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. To help parse through the chatter is Allison Schwartz, who served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 2005 to 2015 and previously worked as a health service executive. In recent years, Congresswoman Schwartz has been at the helm of the Better Medicare Alliance, a nonprofit 501c4 advocacy and research group supporting Medicare Advantage, even calling it, quote, the future of Medicare. Medicare Advantage has surged in popularity in recent years, not only among the insurance community, but also among employers and patients alike. To navigate a challenging environment, healthcare leaders need to be able to adapt to changing consumer preferences and emerging market drivers. So with all that in mind, I want to start our conversation there. And Congresswoman, you were on Capitol Hill, as I said, for a decade. I'm curious, what are your expectations for how the Congress and the Biden administration will approach healthcare policy? And as a follow-up to that, what areas do you expect to see action take place and where should healthcare leaders prepare for potential changes? Okay, good question. Uh, because healthcare continues to be, and not always, but a top of mind policy issue for the Biden administration and and for Congress. Uh, you know that uh, the candidates ran on and talked about healthcare, and uh, it's going to be an important part of the agenda. And with COVID nineteen pandemic persisting uh, this year, uh, and the importance of getting control of the of the you know the COVID-19 pandemic itself is going to just be top of mind for this administration and for Congress. You're seeing that in early action. So uh, making sure that there's adequate vaccines and, and that the vaccination is distributed fairly and effectively all matters, uh, as well as making sure the healthcare industry itself, which has really gone through so much in this last year, uh, is strong and healthy and able to uh, provide not only the needed services for those with COVID, but also those who actually uh, have all sorts of other health needs. And prepare for 2022, which will be potentially having a lot more health services come back, utilization back up, delayed care needing to be responded to, uh, and what that's all meant. Uh, so certainly at, at Better Medicare Alliance, we have been very clear and, and attentive to what's going on during COVID and how Medicare Advantage itself, and some of the sort of move to value, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit, has really driven uh, a different kind of response, a more prepared response uh, to seniors and other Medicare beneficiaries during uh, the pandemic. But a couple other things on, on the Biden administration and, and Congress. Obviously, it's a Democratic House and Senate, uh, Senate narrowly so. Actually, the House is also not a wide uh, majority. So what legislation gets done will have to be crafted very carefully, uh, either to get all Democrats on board or to uh, actually bring in some Republicans, which you know, we all know is really Biden's preference. Uh, but that said, the top of mind, I think, will be, uh, in addition to COVID, will be the things that you've already heard from the Biden administration, which are things like uh, 
being able to fix the ACA and to uh, be responsive to the newly uninsured uh, due to the pandemic and the economic downturn. So expanding eligibility, uh, making sure that the exchanges are all whole and healthy will be uh, top of top priority in the next relief uh, package uh, and also expanding Medicaid. Uh, particularly in states where they've not done Medicaid expansion yet. Uh, that, doing those two things will address one of the concerns that Democrats have, which is to make sure that healthcare is as universal as it can get to be, built on the, on the chassis of the ACA and Medicaid and, and Medicare. In Medicare, we certainly have heard and believe that the, well, it's not exactly clear where the Biden administration stands on Medicare Advantage. Uh, we know that they value the the drive to to value based care uh, and to and want to maintain the promise to Medicare. So we expect some guarantees of Medicare, all the guarantees of Medicare to continue uh, and to be respectful of the fact that Medicare Advantage is now 42 percent of all beneficiaries are in Medicare Advantage. In some congressional districts, it's over 50 or 60%. So you're looking at strong growth in enrollment in Medicare Advantage uh, that is really working for beneficiaries. More cost savings uh, for beneficiaries, about $1,600 a year, simpler system of a Medicare Advantage and uh, a prescription drug plan and extra benefits that matter to beneficiary. There's a good, solid agreement that this move to a capitated system, to value-based uh, payment arrangements is absolutely key to getting better outcomes, better care, at better cost to, uh, to seniors and other Medicare beneficiaries. And that is something that Medicare Advantage is leading the way on. So as they get into that deeper dive into some of the, the policies, we certainly are going to be touting all that happens at a Medicare Advantage. But the, the power of enrollment itself is going to be very, very important. And the idea that it is, is reducing costs for seniors is going to be very powerful uh, in engaging this administration in the support of Medicare Advantage. It's so interesting to hear from someone like yourself, who's obviously been so involved in healthcare over the past few decades, and especially having that experience on the Hill, being able to identify some of the uh, issues that may not be as front of mind as we deal with the pandemic, but are certainly going to have to be addressed by the Biden administration. And, and to that end, I wanted to ask you, obviously, you've had the both public and private sector experience in healthcare over many years. What from your experience, I know you alluded to value-based care, you were obviously on the Hill when the ACA was crafted and then passed into law. What have been some of the most meaningful changes to the industry that you've seen over the course of your career? And where do you think there's still room for improvement? Well, there's always room for improvement and, and learnings from what we, we've done. But um, you're right, I was uh, on the Ways and Means Committee uh, during the ACA, very, very involved in, uh, in the work of you know, crafting that legislation and getting it passed. And I'm um, certainly proud of the effectiveness in protecting people with pre-existing conditions. I was a leader on that, uh, but also in really recognizing the important role of primary care and the ability to improve care delivery by focusing on primary care, on focusing on integrated care, on pushing care coordination, and recognizing that the, the needs in, in healthcare itself have really shifted for seniors not to exclude um, episodes, acute episodes of care. Obviously, that is always a concern. We want to provide uh, 
certainty around around those kind of really big moments in, in healthcare. But for so many seniors, it's really managing chronic conditions and recognizing that is where so much of the high risk, high cost, high spending is in Medicare, as it is across the board, uh, is really something to focus on. So. Um, it's been very much a part of my life's work is to uh, is to assure both access to to coverage, universal coverage, uh, in many different ways to get there uh, as we're getting there, but then to move the system of healthcare from what has been increasingly recognized as a, a flawed free for service system incentivizes more procedures, more uh, intervention, maybe potentially unnecessary interventions to a more value-based system, one that actually appreciates the need for providers to be working together in a more integrated way. I was very active on even uh, electronic medical records and e-prescribing and, and bringing, bringing a technology to bear on this. But understanding now even more how you can do identifying who's in need, who needs extra care, uh, what does it take to actually help people live healthier lives, uh, and how does the healthcare system not only take care of medical needs but also look at social determinants of health, identify uh, disparities, address those disparities, uh, and really engage in a broader way at getting getting people the kind of interventions and building the kind of trust with the healthcare system that is not so epi episodic, but is not an ongoing effort to um, to better attend more quickly and intervene more quickly and more regularly uh, for people's health care. It's something, again, that's the work I do now with the Better Medicare Alliance because that's what happens under Medicare uh, Advantage, uh, but it is also something that is really important throughout the healthcare system. Seniors mostly because they're the ones who have the, the greatest health care needs for you, typically, uh, but not only. Uh, I do think that the healthcare system and legislation and funding and the whole financing of health care needs to move in this direction. Uh, commercial and uh, and private insurance uh, employers uh, have a role in, in this since they pay for a lot of health care. Uh, but basically, public policy itself through public programs, Medicaid, top of mind, Medicaid, uh, I'll even go to Children's Health Insurance, which I was really very much a, a leader on, and on the, when I was a state senator, all of them have to begin to move the healthcare system to more prevention, more ongoing care, more primary care, more integrated uh, system of care for, for beneficiaries. Uh, and again, building that trust and understanding that social risk factors matter uh, is something that I think is, is really where we are in healthcare right now. It's an exciting moment to recognize that. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities for uh, both the nonprofit sector and the for-profit sector to to work together to create the technology and the uh, interactions and the ability to identify risk and people with risk and to uh, engage beneficiaries in new ways uh, from our Apple watches to much less sophisticated uh, systems where we actually are putting healthcare services in communities of need and attending to uh, social risk factors such as need for transportation, such as need for fresh food and nutrition, such as need for, uh, for social support. All of that is very much a part of the future of, 
on the way healthcare is going to look in America, I believe, and to drive better outcomes at better costs for the consumer and for government. It's funny that you bring up the future, uh, speaking about the past and obviously how things have changed. I'm curious your thoughts forward looking on where healthcare is trending and whether or not you're bearish or bullish. Obviously, I think if we had had this conversation uh, even six months ago in the middle of the pandemic, I think people would have been a lot more downbeat. But as we've seen the vaccines uh, get created and then rolled out and we're starting to see the, the numbers of infections go down, I think there's a growing sense that we could be getting back to normal. But a lot of leaders that I've also spoken to say that they don't wanna go back to what normal was. They wanna completely change the system and use this as an opportunity to kind of reset where healthcare's at. So I wanted to present that as a question to you just in terms of what your thoughts are on where the industry goes from here and why or why you're why or why not uh you're optimistic well i always think we can we can make things better and i think it's hard not to be optimistic even in spite of what has been really a difficult year uh obviously for americans for you know everyone in this country and worldwide but for the healthcare community it's been stressful and difficult and you know our uh our thoughts and prayers and appreciation goes out to all those essential workers and healthcare workers who have been steadfast uh, and innovative and uh, ability to, to survive and thrive in, in this particular pandemic that has been so persistent and so widespread uh, has just been extraordinary. Uh, the scientific community has stepped up and we thank them as well. And certainly individuals and communities have stepped up to look out for each other. So for healthcare, I think it's absolutely correct for us to look at what are the lessons learned? What else can we be doing and should be doing? Top of, top of that agenda is certainly telehealth the use of telehealth to get people the health care they needed uh, was was just extraordinary. The numbers are amazing moving. You know, we have some providers who talked about moving from, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand to tens of thousands of of contacts with uh, with beneficiaries. But understanding that uh, not everyone has the access to the technology we need. Some don't have the access access to the broadband because of where they live. Some don't have the, uh, the finances or the, the uh, personal skills to be able to handle. Uh, technology has to be recognized. We have to make this technology simpler and easier to use and more available. And we, we can't rely on the most sophisticated video chat functions. We, we need to be able to drill it down to make it readily available to many more people. Um, and some of that is use text, you know, don't, you know, make sure that there are ways that people can um, make, make use of these technologies, but um, it, they don't have to be rich to do so or live in certain areas to do so. It's gonna be extremely important. We have found that people have been, at least I'm gonna talk about in Medicare, really responsive to telehealth visits. Uh, not everyone uses it, the ones who do find, um, even audio, you know, only uh, conversations with their providers really important. We find that issues of loneliness have been addressed through companionship and, and check-in vision. I think and always exciting times, but this one I think is one that we uh, we should really seize the, the innovations we've learned. And again, in Medicare Advantage, we've seen it. We've seen it with our 150 ally organizations. We've seen it more broadly across. Uh, healthcare uh, that's really just been extraordinary and speak to the future.
We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, I'm Melanie Blackman, Strategy Editor at Health Leaders. In light of Women's History Month and International Women's Day, I'm excited to announce our upcoming launch of Women in Healthcare Leadership Podcast. Debuting on April 7th, the Women in Healthcare Leadership Podcast will release on the first Wednesday of every month and feature the voices of inspiring women leaders in the healthcare sector. Building on our monthly articles about women executives who share insights on their careers, leadership experience, and how other women can climb up the organizational ladder, we're excited to amplify the voices of these inspiring and amazing healthcare leaders through our new podcast, where we'll discuss what it means and what it takes to be a woman in the C-suite. Subscribe now to the Health Leaders Women in Healthcare Leadership podcast available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. I obviously know that we've focused these first couple questions on healthcare and the industry at large. Obviously wanted to turn it over to you now because you're going to be leaving the organization. You announced that earlier in uh, February. I kind of wanted to go through what the reasoning was for leaving the organization and if there are any future plans after you after you leave this group that you've been at the helm of for the past few years? Well, I've been, I'm very, very proud of the work that I've done in, in taking what was really a concept uh, six years ago to what is now um, a, a fully, fully grown organization, like they mentioned, 156 ally organizations across the spectrum. It's not always easy to bring us uh, so many of the different stakeholders from health plans and provider organizations, large systems and, and primary care groups to community partners and professional associations and, and uh, you know, entrepreneurs, really all of them are represented within Better Medicare Alliance. And to bring the, find that common ground, which is the interest in Medicare advantage and the excitement about how Medicare Advantage, an integrated system of care that is transforming care delivery for seniors and Medicare beneficiaries that are really addressing some and the social risk factors and, and inequities and uh, really bringing an integrated system of care uh, to the fore has really been very, very exciting. So we've been, uh, we're on the Hill, we're engaging with, with, with policy uh, makers and I think it was an, a moment in time when it was a chance to leave the organization as, as strong as it, it could be, an influential organization. I wish BMA well, I'm gonna be around till, uh, the end of June, July 1, and I wanted to give the organization a chance to go through a transition. And I look forward to new opportunities for me. Uh, again, I, I spoke during this, this conversation about the future of healthcare in America. Uh, it's, I think Medicare and what happens in Medicare matters greatly. Uh, so I may stay certainly engaged and I look forward to staying engaged in the conversation around Medicare and the opportunities, but maybe even more broadly about how can we build on the lessons learned? How can we move forward? How can we continue to uh, improve healthcare so that it is, it, it, we do achieve what has been a goal through my professional career, both in elected office and in the private sector, uh, to make sure that public policy drives not only universal coverage, but quality care um, and, uh, and more thoughtful care in terms of earlier intervention, primary care, and more integrated care. It's, 
care deliveries mattered a lot to me. And we need to do so in a way that respects the consumer, brings down costs for the consumers, and is affordable for the for the government as well. So um, still lots to talk about, and I expect to be a part of the conversation. I look forward to it for sure. Well, we've appreciated having you on the show and certainly gaining your insights both from the policy perspective, but also from your work in the in the private sector as it relates to healthcare. So I kind of wanted to end our conversation with uh, opening up to you in terms of any parting advice that you would have for our, our healthcare leaders, primarily in the hospital and, and payer space, at least for our publication, in terms of uh, strategic outlook going forward, just anything that you would say to them given your your experience. Well, I'd say that the this this is known, but it's certainly not uh, easy to uh, to change our healthcare system. I mean, being again very respectful of the uh, of the healthcare industry, hospitals, and 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 payers to to um, really encourage them to to think about the future, to to embrace this notion of of how can we get better care at better cost to the consumer uh, and keep quality in mind this is not only about access but it is about quality but that quality has to include are we keeping people uh, safe are we keeping people uh, in, in outpatient settings are we in communities uh, that need us uh, and, and sometimes have to go to the consumer more than we might have thought of and to to really recognize well the main focus is on medical and clinical care itself, recognizing the social determinants of health and engaging with those community partners in, in moving uh, some services into the home or into the community setting is going to be extremely important for us to be able to provide the kind of excellence of care uh, that also addresses the needs and expectations of seniors and of all, I think, of all of us uh, going forward. And that's taking a bit of transformation, maybe taking more financial risk, uh, driving care delivery in new ways, uh, and being open to do that. Uh, and I'll, I'll throw in the post-acute space as well, as often set aside as, as a bit different. I think that's true about behavioral health and some of these other uh, social and, and mental illness. Um, these are issues that have often been set, kept separate um, and need to be brought into the fold. So, um, Lots to do going forward, and I uh, I look forward to engaging with with uh, many of your listeners going forward on how public policy can help drive that and support those changes uh, to help make it successful of for everyone. Building these public-private partnerships is not easy, but it is what I believe uh, makes our healthcare system in America really work. So uh, look forward to to more conversations on all of that. Absolutely. And we've enjoyed this conversation as well. You provided so many great insights for our audience and hopefully our listeners, like you said, can be part of that solution going forward for being able to maintain those public-private partnerships and really improve healthcare as a whole. So we've, we've enjoyed the time with you uh, this afternoon, Congresswoman, and we certainly wish you the best of luck in whatever comes after you leave the organization, but certainly appreciate your insights from what uh, BMA has been doing over these past few years. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. And we want to thank our listeners as well for joining us on this episode of the Health Leaders Finance Podcast. Till next time, keep taking care of your patients and each other.